The letter from the victorious Jesus to the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. That's where we are. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now they received this letter very early on, about a hundred years into the first century, or the end of the first century, I should say. But I want to go back in time about 800 years to about the year 700 B.C., because right there in the land where Sardis was, there was a different city there. Sardis wasn't there at that time. It was a different town. And this town was the capital of an empire called the Lydian Empire, and the king of this empire was named Gog, G-O-G. You read his name a little bit later in the book of Revelation. But everything was fine in this empire. Everything was fine in this city. They had no reason to think that anything out of the ordinary was happening. Uh, Business was going on as usual. Life was going on as usual. They went to sleep, and in the next morning, a massive army was besieging the city. One night, everything was fine. The next morning, everything was lost. And they never saw it coming. It was a surprise attack. So that by the time the city of Sardis came around, it had already been destroyed for 700 plus years. Now let's imagine the king of Gog was doing his kingly duties, and he got news that there was a massive army marching on the city. That would have been bad news. That would have been bad news for King Gog to hear, but the only thing worse than getting bad news is not getting bad news. Do you see what I mean? Because if he had known that there was a massive army marching on the city, even though it was bad news, that would have been news he wanted to hear. Because if he knew that was going to happen, he could prepare for it. He could get ready for it. He could have prevented it from happening. Or at least fought against it. Because the only thing worse than getting bad news is not getting bad news. We know this from our own life. I had a car inspection this week. Thankfully, everything passed. But if it didn't, that would have been bad news. But it would have been good news I wanted to get. The only thing worse than getting bad news in that situation is not getting bad news because I would have found out not at the garage but on the side of the highway. But think about going to the doctors. You go to the doctors and the doctor sits you down and he says, hey, I have some bad news. And he tells you some, uh, some disease or some, some maybe cancer. That's bad news. But the only thing worse than getting that bad news would be to not get bad news because now that you know you can fight it, You can be prepared. And that's what's going on in Sardis, because Jesus is writing this letter to the church in Sardis, and it is not a fun letter to receive. This letter is full of bad news for the church in the city of Sardis. But the only thing worse than getting bad news is not getting bad news, because now that the church in Sardis knows the bad news, and we'll see what that is, they can do something about it. So let's go and look at this letter together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Sorry, one through six. I'll read it, we'll pray, we'll dive in. All right, let's go. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white." For they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It is God's word. It's living. It is active. It is worthy of our time to study, to pick apart, to seek to understand, so that we can believe what it says, obey what it requires, and delight in the God it reveals. Amen? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know this is from you. So help us understand what it's saying. And we don't want to just know what it's saying so that we can believe it, we, we, but, but so that we, it can change the way we live, so that it can change the way we worship. Father, we want to be made different because of these words. We want them to change us. And so, Father, I pray that the result of today would be a number of things. That first it would be conviction, if there's things we need to be convicted of. That it would be encouragement, if there's things that we need to be encouraged in. But that ultimately, in all things, it would bring glory to your name, Lord. Be glorified in this. Don't let us leave unchanged. And don't let us go through this without giving you the glory that you are due. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this letter starts in the same way that a lot of the letters start. Let's read the first verse here. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Once again, he's echoing echoing what we saw in the first chapter of, book, of the book of Revelation, picking a couple things specifically. First, he's talking about the seven spirits of God. Uh, it's, it's a strange way to say it, but actually most people agree that this is talking about the Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to the seven churches. One spirit sent to seven places. And also here, he's talking about the seven stars. We know what that's talking about. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So what we see right here in this, this beginning half verse, this, this beginning reminder of what we saw in chapter 1, is a reminder of the spiritual provision that has been given to them. Let me say that again. It's a reminder of the spiritual provision that Jesus has given to this church, the church in Sardis. He, Jesus, he is the sender of the Spirit. Not just that, but he, Jesus, he is the commander of the angels. Jesus is not far off from them. He is with them. He is totally aware of their walk, of their lives, what's happening in their hearts, and he has the power to do for them and with them and to them what he must. That's the beginning introduction here. That's the first reminder. And this is what he says now to them in the second half of verse 1. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I mean, I want you to imagine that you're a Christian in Sardis and you, you've just read a couple letters, right? The letter to Ephesus, the, Ephes- the letter to Smyrna, on and on. And in every single one of those, they start with good news, right? They start with a commendation. You're doing this well, and then they'll move on later uh, to what they're not doing well, but not for them. They start with bad news. Bad news. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says... He says, you have the reputation of being alive. Well, that sounds good. It sounds good that they have this reputation of being spiritually vital, spiritually vibrant. That others admire them. 
They have the reputation of being a godly church community. They have a reputation of being the kind of church that people in other towns think about and they think to themselves, man, I, I wish I could be a part of that church over in, over in Sardis. They have the type of church that, if it was around today, might be writing books on how churches should do ministry. Uh, they, they might have the kind of pastor that actually travels around and speaks at conferences and writes books. This is an influential church, a church with a good reputation. And all that's well and good. Except for the fact that it's not true. <laughs> because the reality is, though everyone thinks they're doing well, though they have a good reputation, Jesus says, you are dead. Now, it sounds like Jesus is actually um, speaking in hyperbole here. He's saying it a little bit more strongly than he means. And the reason why I say that is because what we see in the very next verse, it says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So, reading between the lines here, what it sounds like is that this church was spiritually vital, spiritually vibrant. And the church had a good reputation. The church had earned that good reputation. They walked faithfully with God for many years. And then, in time, the church came off the rails a little bit. The church grew a little bit more complacent. Their hearts grew a little bit by little bit by little bit more cold. And so from the outside looking in, all still looked well. But in reality, their hearts had grown cold. They were complacent. They had grown lax in walking with the Lord, specifically what we're going to see uh, in, their, in their deeds, faith and deeds. Now, do you understand why this would be such a precarious place to be in, such a dangerous place to be in? Because I don't have to convince you it's not a good thing to be spiritually dead. That, that's pretty clear. They were dead, spiritually dead, or at least in a very precarious place in their walk with the Lord. It wasn't vibrant, it wasn't vital, not like it used to be. But it's even worse to be spiritually dead and think you're spiritually alive. Because you're not even looking for it, you're not even aware. You're not even aware that things aren't as good as you think they are. And if it's bad to be spiritually dead, worse to be spiritually dead and think you're alive, then it's worse of all to be spiritually dead, think you're spiritually alive, and have everyone else patting you on the back, applauding you for the vitality of your faith, saying, you guys got it together, when in reality, they don't. You're patting, they're patting these people's backs on their way to the grave. This is a precarious, dangerous spot. So what should they do? Because we know the only thing worse than getting bad news is not getting bad news. They've gotten the bad news, but what are they going to do about it? Let's go on. Let's read verses 2 and 3, the first half of 3, because Jesus tells them clearly what to do. That's what he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. See, it is an emphasis on works, a little bit at least. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So they're getting bad news. You have a good reputation, but that good reputation has blinded you to your spiritual complacency. And so Jesus says, Wake up, open up your eyes recognize the truth that you are not as well off as you think you are. Recognize the fact that you have grown spiritually complacent in your walk with me, Jesus says. Secondly, strengthen what remains. Fortify what you've still got. Stop your downward spiral. Then, remember. 
Remember the message of truth that you received at first. Remember the life of submission you've been called to. Remember the way that I have asked you to live. The things I have asked you to believe. And then, keep it. In other words, repent. Go back to it. Turn back. Recommit yourselves to walking in obedience to Christ. Why? Verse 3 again. Look with me there. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus is saying, guys, wake up. Repent of your complacency, because Jesus is coming again to bring his judgment, and he will come like a thief. He's quote, Jesus is actually quoting himself here from the book of Matthew, chapter 24. What he's saying is, I'm going to come at a moment you don't expect it, like a thief. Like a thief doesn't tell the owner of a house when he's going to come and break into the house, so also Jesus, when he comes again, he's not going to give warning. He's not going to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm coming at midnight tonight. You're not going to know when. He's just going to come. And, you know, there's a lot of things here that I already just want to slow down and look at, but rather than doing that this week, let's push through to the end. Let's get the big picture. And then we're going to turn around and look back at everything. So let's continue on, verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, hey, so a little light. A very negative letter, but now finally at the end, a little glimmer of light. Even though they are awash in, in good-looking complacency, there are some who've remained faithful. There are some who've walked faithfully with God, who've remained unstained from the world, as James says. And he describes these people with three images. I'm just going to hit them really quick. First, they're wearing clean white garments. It's easy to understand how this could just be a symbol of purity, a symbol of sinlessness, of holiness. But I want, I want to notice how they got those garments. Jesus tells us. He says here that they will be clothed thus in white garments. Do you see that? They are clothed in pure white garments. And how did they get their pure white garments? They were given to them by Jesus. That's an amazing, beautiful thing. The reality is, we do not get pure and clean in the eyes of God by ourselves. He makes us pure. Jesus makes us clean. And he has done so by the blood of the cross. That's the first thing we need to see. Second, Jesus will never blot his name out of the book of life. In other words, in the kingdom ledger... (laughs) In the book that lists all the names of the citizens of the kingdom of God, their name is in there, and their name will not be removed. It's permanent. It's not going anywhere. Third, I will confess his name before the Father. I will confess his name before the Father. He's citing himself again, Matthew chapter 10, 32, when he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Let me just give you the point here. The point is that for those who have remained faithful, who stand firm in Christ, Jesus will make them pure. Jesus will bring them into the kingdom. Jesus will present them before the Father in heaven. 
So we've walked through the passage. And I don't like pushing through the passage so quickly, but I think it's important for us to get the big picture on this one before we turn around and look back. So that's what we're going to do now. We've gotten the passage. Let's get the big picture so that now then we can examine it. Because like all these letters, this is absolutely full of symbolism, right? All types of things that we have to pick apart to try to understand what exactly is being said, but the big picture is actually incredibly clear, and this is what it is. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, you were alive. You had a good reputation. And you at one point deserved that reputation, but now you've grown complacent. You've grown cold spiritually. So wake up. Repent. Return again to a life of faith and good deeds. Because I am coming again at a time that you do not know to usher in the full, future, final kingdom of God. And on that day, I will present my people to the Father, pure and spotless. They will find their names in the book of life. And I will bring judgment upon all of my enemies. That's the big picture. The reason, the motivation for the church to heed this bad news is something that I want to focus in on now. What is it that Jesus is giving this church to motivate them to heed the bad news? To motivate them, to tell them that they really need to take this seriously? It's this. It is the unexpected return of Jesus Christ. That He is coming, and we don't know when. He's coming, but He's coming like a thief. He's coming in the twinkling of an eye. It is near, so be ready. That's the one part of this passage that actually doesn't show up in every other Letter. Yes, the fact that he's going to come and execute judgment is consistent almost in every single one of these letters. But the thing that's not is the all of a suddenness of it, the nearness of it. And the nearness of Christ's return is not something we actually talk about very much in the church. It's not something I personally think about, if I'm honest, all that much. But it is something that the Bible talks about quite a bit. Can I read you just a sampling of some of these passages that tell us about Jesus' return? Acts chapter 1. Jesus will come in the same way that you, as you saw him go into heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Mark chapter 13. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, 42, Stay awake, for you do not know at what hour the Lord is coming. Matthew 24, verse 44, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter chapter 3, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It is not something we talk about much, but it is something the Bible talks about much. He's coming, and we don't know when. This is going to happen. It's near, and it will happen when we least expect it. So when you hear that, what do you think? How, how do you respond to that? What effect does it have on you? I can't answer that question for you, but I can't answer that question myself. 
When I hear that, when I think about that, what that does in me is it sturges in me, one word, urgency. (laughs) He's coming at a moment we don't know. That kicks everything into action a little bit. I I feel the urgency of of the things that he calls me to when I recognize the fact that he is going to come in a moment I don't know. I want to be ready when he comes. I don't want to have business left undone when he comes. And so what we're going to do now is I want to put forward three ways that Jesus' unexpected return should stir an urgency in us. And the first one is this. The fact that Jesus is coming at a time that we don't quite expect will grow in us an urgency to urgently seek Jesus. We urgently, we should rather, we should be motivated to urgently seek Jesus. Now I know that the people in this room were all in different places. There are some people here and at home who know Christ. Some who uh, decidedly don't, uh, decidedly have chosen not to follow Christ. But then there's also a lot of people who don't quite know where they stand yet. They're, they're seeking things. They're, they're considering things. And this is healthy. This is good. You, you have to slowly and wisely and seriously consider if Jesus is who he says he is. So we, there, there is space for that. And I just want to say very briefly, be free is a safe place to be wrestling with that question. What do I actually believe about Jesus Christ? And so it's this group that I'm actually talking about specifically here when I'm talking about urgently seeking Jesus. Those who are trying to figure out what they believe about him. I want to encourage you specifically to urgently seek Jesus. I want to encourage you by saying that the question of who Jesus is is not a question that you want to put off to later. Yes, it's okay to take your time as you consider and wrestle and pray. But your time to think things over will eventually be gone because there will be a day when Jesus arrives. This is a question, therefore, that though you must take time to wrestle with honestly, it must not be a question that you put off getting to at all. You need to start wrestling with this question if you don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ. If you don't know where you stand with Him, you have to take this search seriously. Because if you are seeking him earnestly, if you are seeking him urgently, you will find him. So first, urgently seek Jesus. Seek if he ever walked the earth. Ask yourself if Jesus really is who he says he is, God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Ask yourself if Jesus has truly died to take away the punishment for sin that we all deserve. And if you believe in that, do not wait. Do not go slowly to him. Run to him. And put your trust in him. Believe that he died in your place and experience the life that is found in him. And enter confidently into the kingdom of God. If that's you, I want to get coffee with you. I will cancel many things in my calendar to spend time with you. And I'm not the only one. There's people in this church who are desperate for you to know the joy that they too know. And they will talk to you about Jesus Christ. So, do not seek Jesus alone. Ask anyone in this room who you know is a follower of Christ. And we will walk with you as you urgently pursue the question how you, what you believe about Jesus Christ. So that's if you don't know him. If you don't know him, 
urgently seek Christ. But what if you do know Him? Because many of us do. Many of us have truly put our faith in Him and have been made new, are spiritually alive, have, been passed, have passed from death to life. So what about us? What do we do with these, this, this information that Jesus will come unexpectedly? Well, we urgently fight complacency. We urgently fight complacency. So we know that our union with Christ, the fact that we by faith have been united with Him, we know that that will never change. The blood of Jesus Christ leaves a stain of purity on us that will never be wiped off. You are His. You cannot lose the life that you have found in Jesus Christ. But even though our, commu- our union with Christ will never change, our communion with Christ can change. The intimacy that we experience with Him can change. We can grow complacent in seeking Him. We can allow other things to distract us from pursuing our relationship with Him. We can take our eyes off of Him. We can let our lives look less and less and less like Him. This is, this is what happened in Sardis. In fact, it's a lot like a marriage covenant. You, when you are married to somebody, that marriage is forever. It's not going to change just based upon how much time you spend together. That union is, is done. It's complete. It's not changing. But if you never talk to your spouse, if you, if you never have hard conversations, if you never uh, do things that you enjoy doing together, your communion will change. The intimacy will grow less and less present. It will become less and less real. You're still married, but the communion can die. And if this is what happens in Sardis, this is also what happens in our life as well. I'll share with you one way that happens in my life. I have a a rhythm in my life of daily waking up, spending time in the Word, praying with my wife, starting my day. That is the the rhythm uh, that that we practice as a family. It's sweet. It's life-giving. But sometimes uh, we have a busy week. (laughs) Sometimes we had to stay up really late the night before and the day doesn't start until maybe an hour after it typically does. And so when that happens, I sometimes miss that rhythm of time in the world, in the Word. And when that happens, the world doesn't explode. You know? My love for Christ doesn't stop if I miss a morning in the Word. And so, as time continues more and more, I, I can tend to treat that rhythm as an optional part of my life. I mean, the world didn't end when I missed it once. So I mean, What's the big deal if I miss it again? And then that becomes more of a rhythm. I, I keep treating this beautiful part of my life, this thing that has been a source of so much joy and, and intimacy with the Lord, as optional. Until time passes and I recognize that I haven't done it as much, maybe once or, or twice a week, I realize that my desire for that time with the Lord has has eased and has, has dwindled. It's like a log that's been brought out of the fire. It'll burn on its own for a little bit, but apart from the fire, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get cooler and cooler and cooler until one day, maybe I snap at Olivia or I snap at Davy, and I realize that my intimacy with the Lord is just, is just all but not there. And it's happened because I've abandoned this rhythm of keeping my heart warmed, of, of, of keeping an intimate communion with Christ. Why? Because I grew complacent. 
I let this good thing that isn't a command necessarily that I spend every morning in the world, uh, but a healthy rhythm that I have found to, to, um, to, to uh, develop an intimacy in me with Christ, um, I, I, I let it become optional. And this is something that we do quite a bit. I'm sure that you can think of the only, your own things in your life that, where, where this happens, that we let rhythms, things that Christ, that we have, uh, things where we have found Christ become optional to us. Um, a big one is church attendance. You can miss church one week and the world isn't going to end. That's true. But this is a rhythm that God has called us to in His Word, to come together with the saints, with the brothers and sisters. This is my daughter. <laughs> and if you miss a Sunday morning, the world's not going to end. But all of a sudden, after time, this time together with the, with the brothers and sisters, it's going to start feeling pretty optional. And this thing that's meant to pump life and vitality into your relationship with Christ will not happen as much. And that's what we mean when we say that, Christ, that coming to church is not optional. What we mean is that we need to treat it like it's not optional. Because it is a way that we come to intimately, more intimately be with our, our Lord. This also happens with sin. We might have some sin in our life that we consider uh, not that big a deal. And so we don't attack it that hard. We let it fester a little bit. And like a cancer, it can spread and spread and spread until this sin that we considered no big deal, all of a sudden is covering a pretty big swath of our spiritual lives. It's cutting off the, the life in our body. It's, it's not pleasing to the Lord. We're, we're valuing it more than we value Him. And so it's true. Our union with Christ can never save, change. When we are made alive, we are alive. But our communion with Christ requires constant attention. It requires us to, here's the word again, urgently fight against complacency. Urgently fight for these rhythms that bring life into our spiritual lives. So we seek Him, we fight sin, we develop healthy rhythms, but when we realize we've slid away from this into complacency, we take Jesus' advice in verses 2 and 3. First, we wake up. We open our eyes. We recognize that our healthy rhythms in our life, uh, we've grown complacent to. Next, we strengthen what's already there. We stop sliding any more away from the Lord. And then we remember. We remember the gospel. We remember who we are in Christ. We remember what has, Christ has done for us. And then we repent. We turn back. We go back to Him. We recommit ourselves to the Lord. And so if you don't know Jesus, earnest, urgently seek Him. If you do know Jesus, urgently fight complacency. And then finally, if you do know Jesus, urgently spread the news. Urgently spread the news. If Jesus is coming unexpectedly, if His coming is near, then our mission to bring the good news to the nations is urgent. People need Jesus. They need Him urgently. And so we need to tell them. We have been entrusted with the mission to bring the good news to the nation. And now this isn't an excuse for us to be thoughtless in how we go about our mission. Yes, it's urgent, so we just throw all caution to the wind and do whatever it takes to annoy them into the kingdom of God. I don't think that's the right way to do it. We, don't need, we can't be thoughtless. We can't barge into conversations about Jesus like a bull in a china shop. 
We can't push so hard that we push them away, but rather, what I'm trying to say is that we can't just wait around for our friends to bring up our faith. We can't just sit around and wait for them to ask us to tell them about Jesus. No, we push in. We urgently seek conversations about Jesus. We urgently pray for our friends. We urgently pray for opportunities to share about Christ. We urgently share what we believe with the people we love, and we urgently ask them what they believe. We do all we can to talk to the people we love about the Lord who loves them. Jesus is coming. So urgently seek Jesus if you don't know him. Urgently fight against complacency if you do. And urgently bring the good news of the gospel to the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, I, I need this reminder. I need to be reminded, Lord, that that your coming is near, that's going to happen, <laughs> that that's a reality, that's not just something we read about. Father, I need to be reminded also of the way that needs to affect my life, uh, my, myself as a believer, Lord, to fight against complacency and to fight to bring your news to people who don't know you. But I pray this morning, Lord, that this would be just another nudge in our back. That you would once again use your word to nudge us once again in the direction that you want our lives to look like. Father, change us and urge us and drive us forward today. We love you. We want to be like you. And we want you to receive all the glory that you're due. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.